0: Our New Testament reading comes from Matthew 7, beginning at verse 13 through the end of the chapter. You can find that on page 963 in your pew Bible. Again, Matthew 7, beginning at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Amen. Let's keep
1: that text open and let's bow our heads as we ask for God's help today. Everyone who hears these words of mine is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And so our prayer this morning, Father, as we live today in the light of eternity, is that you would give us the wisdom to hear and to obey. And we ask these things for Jesus' namesake, for his glory. Amen. Amen. The word decision comes from the Latin word decidere, which is really a combination of two words. The first word de, meaning cut off, or more literally kill. The second being the thing. The word decide then is a stark word, almost violence. For to decide is to cut away and kill off the other thing. In fact, the word decide is from the same family of words as suicide. And you can almost hear it in the words, decides, suicides. All of this is a fascinating window into decision-making. Because when you choose one course what we're really doing is killing off the other option. This is how it works in every arena of life, from corporate America, to political policies, to personal career options, to important family decisions. Your decision to relocate to Vermont is effectively saying no to, or killing off, the possibility of moving to Maine, or New Hampshire, or Massachusetts. If in the restaurant you opt for the steak in pepper sauce, you are cutting off or killing off the other options on the menu. No to the lamb shank and the duck à l'orange or the nut cutlets. In deciding to marry Sally, what you're actually doing is killing off any possibility of marrying Sophie or Samantha or Sylvia, Susie or Sasha. But this morning, Jesus is going to move us from the temporal world of everyday decision into an arena we don't really think much about, which is the area of eternal choice. And how we decide here will determine our eternal destiny. It is a decision of life and death. This is a decision of heaven or hell. And it's so stark and pressing that the way Jesus underlines it is through a series of striking contrasts as we are confronted with a clear choice. And it is A or B, black or white, one or the other. There are no nuances. There cannot be half and half. It can't be a bit of one and a bit of the other. Jesus, in this summary of the Sermon on the Mount, has three arresting sketches, three graphic pictures, as he in love longs to move us from the wrong choice to the right choice, moving us from destruction to life through his gospel of grace. And it's a series of questions which we've got on our sheets here. First of all, two roads. The question, which will you walk? Verses 13 to 14. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gates. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it verse 14 but the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life and there are few who find it verse 13 is the key imperative and it's an urgent command enter what we are to enter is the kingdom of god but the command is precise there is only one point of access only one port of entry only one doorway in and it's small enter through the narrow gate the gate is jesus himself for in john 10 he declares i am the gate whoever enters through me will be saved so the locus of salvation is not the church as roman catholicism teaches but christ And the way into salvation is not baptism, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but through faith and personal trust in Jesus. He is the sole place of refuge, the sole locus of salvation, for he alone lived the perfect life. He suffered the agonies of the cross. He paid the penalty for us in full and triumphed over the grave. And it was at the Reformation that this was rediscovered. We are saved solus Christus, by Christ alone. Sola gratis, through grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Or as Paul puts it in Acts 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So to be clear, there is no salvation from guilt through the Blessed Virgin Mary. There is no salvation from guilt through the saints, the apostles, the angels, or the archangel. There is no possibility of salvation through the Buddha. No possibility of salvation through Muhammad, No possibility of salvation through ourselves. We are saved through Jesus Christ alone. We are saved by Christ plus Nothing, a free gift and the place of our salvation is in his sin-bearing death at Calvary. So all the way through school, we sang a hymn in assembly and I hated it. The words of the hymn went like this. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. The hymn, There is a green hill far away. And then I became a Christian and suddenly understood what I was singing all those years through school. And that hymn that I hated became so precious as it celebrates the uniqueness of Christ and the certainty of salvation if only we will trust in him. According to the Guinness Book of Records, the world's narrowest lane is the Spreherhofstraße in the German city of Rittenleg. It was built in 1727, and at certain points measures only 19.7 inches. Very unsurprisingly, few people can get through the lane. In sharp contrast, the widest road in the world, according to the Guinness Book of Records, is Interstate 10 in Texas which at points through the city of Cathy has a staggering 26 lanes. It's heavily populated. Any vehicle can attempt it, and they do. It serves more than 219,000 cars a day. That's over 81 million a year. Well, it's a no-brainer as we ask the question, which stands as the picture of the Christian entry and of the Christian life? There is a narrow gate into which we must enter. And this narrow gate, which is the picture of justification or conversion, then leads on to a narrow road. So the point of entry is narrow, and the road itself is constricted as well. Indeed, that word in verse 13, which um, our version, the American Standard, translates constricted, is actually a hard word to translate. The NIV and the ESV render the roads narrow. So the gate is narrow and the road is narrow. But actually, our version, I think, gets it right. Because it's not just that the road for the Christian is narrow. There's more to it in the original. The word implies a pressing upon or a crowding in or a squeezing onto a word that was used in the first century to mean oppressed or afflicted. The point is that the way into the kingdom is narrow, and then the kingdom road that we're gonna have to walk is tough, painful, and difficult. It will be full of challenges and afflictions as God tests our faith and grows us through perseverance, as Paul says in Acts 14. It is through many tribulations that we are to enter the kingdom of God. So here is Jesus, God's great king on earth, addressing a mixed crowd with various degrees of loyalty to him, perhaps even as we are gathered here today. And he's using the idiom of two ways, which was outlined in Psalm 1, And in places like Deuteronomy 30, there's a signpost. There are two choices, two paths, the narrow way or the hard way. The broad street, perhaps a road in Manhattan, everybody's on it, it's easy, it's crowded. Well, contrast that street, broad street, Manhattan, with the arduous climb up the mountain, taking all your energy, exhausting you on the icy mountain face. Many will be found on Broad Street, Manhattan. It's easy, few climbing the arduous, steep mountain path. But wait a minute, people say, give me a break. This is such an exaggeration. It's not that stark. is a culture of plural truth and all lifestyles are just variants on the same trajectory. Why make it so black and white? Why does it have to be A and B? Surely, like a Venn diagram, it's a bit of both. Don't exaggerate the points. But Jesus makes it clear. There is no via media. There is no middle place in the middle of the Venn diagram. There is no neutral zone. There is no spiritual Switzerland. Not to proactively enter the narrow way is to be on the broad road that leads to destruction. Not to walk the narrow, constricted path is to be on the broad road, says Jesus, that leads to death. But why? Why has this gate have to be so narrow and why does this road have to be so hard? And Jesus has already told us that in chapter 5 because the kingdom bar is perfection. Be perfect, says Jesus, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, in every decision and relationship, in every situation and context, every hour and moment and nanosecond, in every place we are, in every situation we find ourselves in, we have to strive for perfection, a perfection that escapes us. And so, what we need, as Luther describes it, is an alien righteousness a perfection that comes from somewhere else so not only is the standard impossibly high as i strive to get there the solution is impossibly humbling as it humiliates me as i find a righteousness not through myself but from god as i'm humbled and therefore the reason the christian life is so hard is because it runs not only against the grain of my pride But against the grain of our culture because in every generation what the people around us want is a moral code we can keep a feel-good religion so we can all enter heaven with our heads held high but Jesus says no well if you've been across Europe you'll know that all the churches of Europe in the Middle Ages were built in a cruciform way in the shape of the cross they actually all also point east, as I know our church does too. And it's a powerful picture, isn't it, of our ecclesiology, of our theology of what church is. The Chancellor and are in the shape of the cross, and we face east to the place of the cross, Jerusalem. And that is how the Christian life is to be. And it's how the Sermon on the Mount opened in the Beatitudes, blessed, Well, where is the blessing? It is in the poverty of knowing we can't be fully righteous, and in the persecution of living a cruciform life that goes against a culture of moralistic righteousness. John Bunyan understands this in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And as Christian is making great progress to the celestial city, he eventually meets that horrible character Mr. Byens, he wants to walk to heaven in comforts, and he wants the applause of popularity. And it falls to Christian to rebuke him, and he says this, if you will go with us, you must go against wind and tide, the which I perceive is against your opinion. You must own religion in his rags as well as in his silver slippers. And stand by him, too, when bound in irons, as well as when he walketh in the streets to applause. Are we willing to do that? This is the narrow, constricted path of poverty and persecution that Jesus calls us to follow. Yet it jars. For ours is a therapeutic age. Our culture, what it longs for, is a moral, therapeutic deism that fits modern America. We want a spirituality that doesn't condemn me, but which affirms me, which empowers me to self-identify and express myself to reach my own spiritual potential as the person I choose to be. And therefore, so many churches, denominations, and movements are collapsing on the altar of expressive individualism. As we change the gospel, as we widen the gates, and as we diversify the road to make it easier that more and more people can come into church. But Jesus confronts us with this fundamental question, two roads, which will you walk? But this question of which road actually leads to the second question of the two prophets. Which one will we follow, verses 15 to 20, or more precisely, listen to? Because in verse 15, Jesus has a stark warning for us, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. During the Spanish Civil War, which ran from 1936 to 1939, the nationalistic general, Emolio Mola Vidal, had four columns. And he was asked, how will you win Madrid's? His answer was instant, through my fifth column. The fifth column wasn't really a column, but it was the people in Madrid on his side. People on the insides intent on undermining the country. Those who've gone in secretly to infiltrate to win sympathizers over to the cause. The fifth column stands in our vocabulary now for a group of people who are secretly trying to undermine from within. They are domestic actors seeking to, in a covert and clandestine op, sabotage through espionage, disinformation, or even terrorism. And what Jesus is warning of us in verse 15 is that within the visible church, there will always be a fifth column. In every denomination and church, we can expect them to meet those who profess faith in Jesus, who say that they're on the narrow road, but in reality are working for the enemy, seeking to undermine the teaching of the gospel and divert us from the narrow path to the broad road that leads to destruction. And it's about this that J.C. Ryle so clearly warns the people of his own day in England. Listen to this. False doctrine, then, does not meet us face to face and proclaim that it is false. It doesn't blow a trumpet before it and endeavor openly to turn us from the truth that is in Jesus. It doesn't come to us in broad day and summon us to surrender. It approaches us secretly, quietly insidiously, plausibly, in such a way as to disarm our suspicions and throw us off guard. In this light, Jesus warns, of the wolf in sheep's clothing, the uh, light of the angel, as Satan puts on his garb. It is these who have always proved the most dangerous foes for the church. Let us be on guard against the insidiousness of false doctrine. The fruit which Eve and Adam ate at first looked pleasant and goods. Poison is not written on it. Bad is not stamped on it. It passes for the real thing because of the very likeness it bears to the truth. These are things we should not trifle with. A little poison, a little sin, and a little false doctrine. Doctrine. And in verse 5, the point is that their appearance doesn't really match their character. Their appearance in sheep's clothing. That doesn't mean that they're dressed up like a sheep. Sheep's clothing was the attire or garb or clothing of the shepherd. The shepherd wore sheep's clothing. So the point is that they look like genuine pastors. They've been to seminary. They've got their Ph.D., They're popular on Christian radio. They've got great blogs. They have a following on Twitter. Maybe they even write for the Gospel Coalition. But these teachers are not from God, but from the evil one. It is a covert, undercover op. They will purport to be biblical, evangelical, even reformed, but deep down, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. For the ministry of the false prophets, is to impede the traveler from entering through the narrow gates. And if he does enter through the narrow gate, they'll be there too, ensuring that at times and eventually we leave the narrow roads and enter into a new route, the broad road of ease. In Jeremiah 6, verse 13, the key mark of the false prophets is that they promise peace with God when there is no peace from God. They proclaim that you're under the blessing of God when in reality, people are under the judgment of God. Last week, I was showing one of the children. An incredibly dangerous fish was found for the first time on a beach in Cornwall, very close to where we used to go on vacation. You can look at it later. It's called the oceanic puffer. It is loaded with tetrodioxin, so much so that it uh, is 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. It can kill 30 adults with its skin and flesh, and there is no antidote for it. And so we are glad to have emigrated. But that danger is nothing compared to the danger that Jesus highlights. Beware, he says watch out, there's no greater threat for a flock than a wolf. And in Acts 20, the Apostle Paul warns that in the last days, even after he leaves Miletus, ravenous wolves will come in to destroy the flock. How do they destroy? And the answer is through a false gospel that leads us away from the saving gospel of grace. It is through a message or a new twist on a theology, which kind of sounds right, but isn't really right. And it leads me away from the cross. It leads me from repentance and faith, from Jesus to a new world. As the Pied Piper of Hamelin plays his tune, we listen and like what we hear, so we follow to the river of destruction. In February next year, the Church of England, which was my original denomination, will finally bow to the demands of culture as it votes to accept same-sex relationships as blessed by God. And it is a moment of incredible distress for Orthodox Christians in the UK, and it's seismic because the Church of England through Canterbury rests at the epicenter of the worldwide Anglican Communion. In the run-up to this, the Bishop of Oxford, which was the diocese I used to serve in, has written a 52-page essay apologizing for the historic teaching of the Church on homosexuality. He argues that there must now be a new discourse as to how the Church tackles the subject. And he writes, and I quote, any, any settlement must be founded on love and respect. Love and respect for LGBTQ plus people and their families within and beyond the church. Love and respect for those who take different views. He argues that this must mean that legal barriers preventing gay marriage within the church must be taken away. Public services of blessing must be provided, and even that clergy now should have the freedom of conscience to enter into active same-sex marriages themselves. And as the Pied Piper of Hamelin plays the tune, it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Love and respect. Who can argue with that? An inclusion as we seek to win people for Jesus, that they can belong before they believe. But this is the siren voice of the false teacher luring us from the narrow road of kingdom living in the name of a therapeutic age where what I want is a spirituality that makes me feel good. And the reason we're all going to be vulnerable to this is because who amongst us here wants to be thought of as a theological dinosaur or worse? part of the theological Taliban as he argues for love and respect. Who of us wants to argue against that? Yet Jesus says, beware of the false teacher. So how do we identify them? In verse 16, Jesus says it is through their fruits as he takes us for a horticultural lesson because grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. And healthy trees will bear healthy fruits. But in our last house in the UK, we had an apple tree and it was sick and diseased. And every summer it was the same as the children went to pick apples and it was so depressing because the sick tree had borne no fruit again. But verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. What then is this good fruit? And the answer is the Sermon on the Mounts. It is the life that seeks righteousness, the righteousness of perfection, but it is the life that is humbled by the gospel of grace in our poverty and hunger as we call out in humility to Jesus for that alien righteousness that we don't yet have. And yet, these teachers will be charismatic. They will preach great sermons, cast out demons, and even call Jesus Lord. Jesus says in verse 22, you see, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? But verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you workers of lawlessness. Because fundamentally, Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. It is not about doing, but depending. It is not about my ministry, but God's mercy. And the problem with these teachers who profess faith is they don't know Christ, nor his saving death at Calvary, nor his love and grace in his kingdom. For it is not enough to give creedal assents It is not enough to sacrificially serve. At issue is whether we know Christ and are known by him. And this warning is very sobering, isn't it? And Bunyan understood it. In one of the last lines of his own book, Pilgrim's Progress, he looked and I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. As so many who profess faith Don't live the life of grace, trusting in the saving death of Christ at the cross. This then takes us to our final question, a question of foundation. How then will we build? Because in verses 21 to 23, Jesus takes us to a parable with which the Sermon on the Mount ends. Jesus teaches that everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, but it didn't fall because it has been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and the collapse was great. Two men, two builders. Let's call them Willy Wise and Freddy Fool. They both build their houses. And actually to the outsider, these houses both look the same. Both on the same street and both have five bedrooms and both have a swimming pool and both have a jacuzzi and both have marble top kitchen counters. Had you walked past number 33 and number 36 Paradise Lane, Both would have looked stunning, had both been on the market and the realtor had shown you around, both would have looked like a great buy. But never ask the realtor, ask the surveyor. Because he would have identified that the problem with number 36 was the movement and the fact that actually it's not built on rock, but sand. The rock Jesus is talking about here is the rock of the gospel of grace. And we're going to think about that in just a moment as we take bread and wine. The rock is the salvation of Jesus whose body was broken, whose blood was shed on the cross of Calvary. Build your life on the rock of the gospel of saving grace as the Jesus who loves you has died for the forgiveness of your sins. The sand stands for a moralistic pharisaism, a religion that diverts itself from Jesus, his saving grace, and his sovereign rule. Which will you build on? Because it's interesting, isn't it, that this, the world's favorite sermon, the Sermon on the Mounts, ends with cataclysmic collapse. And the Greek is so strong. And great was the crash of it, as this house built on sand, as the storm of judgment comes, it crashes, never to be seen again. For this question of roads, which way will you walk, is really a question of prophets. Which teacher will we listen to? Which theology will we follow? And this question of which prophet really is a question of foundation. Which foundation will we build on? Moralistic righteousness or the gospel of saving grace? For none of us are good enough to enter the kingdom of God. We have to keep on asking and keep on knocking and keep on seeking. And the promise of the gospel is if we do that, as we cling with a vice-like grip to Jesus, he will save us because the house on the rock stands firm forever and as we take bread and wine in a short moments think to yourself of the security of the gospel of grace that as he hung in degradation and shame he bore my sin he paid my penalty and he exhausted the wrath of god for me and as you take the bread and drink the wine resolve will you today to turn from the siren voices of culture back to the rock of God's saving grace.